everything that you're wearing right now is from somebody who's created a business who's either a millionaire or billionaire. So you've given your money to them that you've worked hard for in exchange for what? And it's like, okay, so for me at the time, it was instant dopamine hit, confidence boost. And that, that goes a certain, certain yeah. extent, right? Welcome to Unquestionable with your hosts, Charles Perry Phillips and Sophie Green, where each week we dive into real and raw conversations with experts, creators, thought leaders and CEOs. With our guests, we'll be exploring some of the unquestionable truths behind psychology, mental health and relationships to gain a deeper understanding of human nature. So let's get into today's episode. Well, Peter Kamalafe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks now, for having me. I wanted to start this conversation by, and, and it, this, the irony of this question isn't lost on me in some respects, given the fact that this is a podcast we're going to be talking generally about money. Uh-huh. Um, it does feel still that the, the the idea of conversations around money is quite taboo. It, do you feel that that's still the case very much? I mean, maybe that's a British cultural thing, but it does still feel like there's a lot of taboo around talking about money in general. Yeah, there is. I mean, I, certainly in the UK, I think we're very British, so it's impolite to talk about money. Whereas you go to places like, you know, the States, the US, they're actually very, very open, bordering on the, the verge of braggadocious about you know, <laughs> yeah. money yeah. and that kind of stuff. But here in the UK, it's still very... We keep it to ourselves. We're very polite around it, very quite humble. Um, but I would definitely say that over the past maybe two to three years, I've seen it become more of an open conversation. People are happy to kind of approach it or feel more confident in approaching the topic. Mm. Um, certainly in the social media space, which is generally where I tend to mm. kind of operate because, I don't know, it's, it's, the, it's the gate world to pretty much a lot of things now on social media. Mm. Um, but yeah. Yeah, there's definitely been a sort of uh, rise in, I guess, it's in some ways, there's a bit of a rise in like the hustle culture. And, and you know, I, I follow a lot of sort of female orientated spaces where it's all about like women, empowering women to mm-hmm. make more money and stuff like that. And like bridging the gap between women and men's income and stuff like that. But I, f- I feel like previously it possibly would have been a bit sort of disgusting to, to admit that you want money mm-hmm. um, and you know they say sort of like money's the root of all evil and stuff like that and so have you found being in the space that you're in have you ever come up against that sort of um friction or people just feeling kind of triggered by by money and talking about finances yeah i mean positively and negatively and i think a positive trigger is good because i think certainly in in times where you have the cost of living crisis being triggered in a positive way to say actually i need to earn more money Mm. that can be quite empowering in itself right um, I think where it becomes negative is, and I see this a lot on social media, is that you get triggered by either comparison, and this is rife on mm. social media. Oh, that person's got this. Why don't I? Why don't I have that? They're going to this holiday, eating at this place, and you know, comparison is the devil of what of everything. Really, mm. you're never going to feel satisfaction in what you have. It robs you of gratitude. I think. So I've definitely seen that. Um, those negative triggers and what it gives rise to unfortunately is the ability for scammers to you know pull pull one over on people and i i see that a lot on my socials i've had my social media you know um cloned a number of times oh, really yeah it's really really it's really really rife it's one of those things that i i'm always telling people if it sounds too good to be true it probably is mm, like, what sort of really thing really do is. they do they do these scammers oh my god um so pff, the last year or so they probably cloned my instagram account 13 times and what they would do they're very very clever they're really really clever 
they would download all of my posts, upload them in a relatively short period of time. But what they would have done beforehand is they'll be in my account, seeing who's following me mm. and then following them. Mm. So they're following these guys and they change the account over to my name or a variation of my name. What they then do is they then DM them and say, hey, it's Pete. Um, I've got this great opportunity. Send me some money. And the last time this happened, there was a guy who actually sent them, I think it was about £3,000. And he sent the money and he was like, this doesn't feel right. Mm. And then he found me and I was like, dude, I would never, ever, ever message you on Instagram asking you for money. And yeah. it's it's very, very common. Really, really common. Mm, yeah, I guess taking advantage of the people that want that, you know, and they're taking positive steps by following you yeah. on social media to sort themselves like financially yeah. fallen prey to that that kind yeah. of thing. That's really sad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so in terms of the positive side of that, then mm-hmm. the positive sort of triggers of seeing people on social media living their best lives and spending lots of money and having nice things and stuff like that. What have you sort of noticed about that sort of area? Is it possible to see these things happening and feel good about yourself? Or? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think one of the things that I've, I've certainly seen, there were two things, actually. The first one is it gives rise to a lot of entrepreneurial thinking, right? Thinking outside the box um, and really taking... Um, valuing the lessons that we've learned over the past two to three years with lockdown and all that kind of Mm. stuff. I mean, the reality is for a lot of people, they've come to the realization that you can't just rely on one income. And uh, there is an element to being financially free or being your your own financial hero that is dependent on you being able to pull in more money. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the positive side is it's given rise to that entrepreneurial thinking. So side hustles, little things that people can do to earn a little bit of extra cash here and there, fantastic. The second thing, which is one that I'm really, really excited about is it's led to people to seek out more information about investing and how to budget and how to manage their debt properly and all of that kind of really, really good stuff that, frankly, we should have been taught in school, but Mm -hmm. we weren't taught in school. And as adults, Mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys, but I certainly learned by trial and error. Like I went to the bank, didn't really know what I was doing. Yeah, took it out because it sounds like a good idea. I have this credit card. I love this Mm. overdraft. (laughs) Completely misuse it, right? Mm. Now we're able to get that information out to people much, much earlier. And that for me can all, it can only be a good thing that has compounding benefit for future generations. Mm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there just does seem to be this kind of belief. And, you know, I'm definitely guilty of it. That if you're not born of wealth, you're not born into sort of an affluent family that's going to teach you as a child how to manage Mm -hmm. your finances and become financially literate. It's almost like, a well, I'm just not interested or I'm not, you know, what's the point or like an apathetic kind of approach to money. I certainly uh, years ago used I didn't have a clue, but I also wasn't really that interested in finding out until I realized the importance so I was wondering if you could speak on a little bit like you know do you have to come from money to get good at money and maybe talk a little bit about your journey on how you personally sort of got good with money and and took the time to learn about that sort of thing yeah I mean look you don't have to be good you don't have to come from a wealthy family to be good with money but I think it certainly helps if you're in a wealthy family that talks about money Mm. right so if you're in a family where at the dinner table they're mentioning things like trust or you know savings and investing you're going to pick that up very very early like there is a there was a study that was done uh, years back that says that we are, our financial habits are baiting at the age of seven and that's mm. that's pretty nuts wow. yeah it's it is. very very scary so when i work with parents now i say look the, the sooner you're able to embed these little conversations these little lessons about the value of money 
uh, you know, setting up chores, for example, or, mm. you know, saying, you know, you want this toy. Let's have a look at, you know, what chores you might need to do to be able to earn that. Mm. And, and giving them a little bit of ownership is so, so important. But my background, I didn't come from money. My parents, I mean, I was fostered from three months to seven year, to eight years old. I was sent over to Nigeria when I was eight, sent back with 50 quid when I was 18 to turn up on my foster parents' house, unannounced completely mm. after 10 years. I have a very, very bad track record with money. And I learned through trial and error, mm. you know, taking out that first credit card, thinking, hey, you know, it's a lifeline. It's going to be fantastic. You know, if I ever need it, guess what? I didn't know how to budget, so I did need it. Mm. And then you start to realize, hang on a second, I didn't understand or didn't ask the questions about how a credit card works and the interest. Mm. But you're into the first one, and because you can't manage it, or I couldn't manage it, it spirals. So the first credit card turns into a second one, turns into a third one, mm. then it turns into an overdraft. Oh, it was a complete and utter mess. <laughs> utter mess. Yeah. For 15 years, I struggled with debt specifically. Mm. But I learned through the fact that I've had a 15-year career in financial services, luckily enough. Um, and a lot of the stuff that I know now is being because it's been my job to know this stuff. And throughout those 15 years I'm like okay if someone told me this when I was like 19 mm. this would have been really nice 20 this would have been really nice I would have made better decisions so you don't have to come from money to be good with money I would just argue that it's uh you have to make more of a conscious effort to to get your skill set up mm. yeah and in the book you talk about um your those those formative years where you found um particularly with your Nigerian family how like there was a lot of arguments around money and, and obviously it was tell us a bit about that like how are there cultural differences between you know when you were in Nigeria to, to being in the UK yeah I mean look if if anyone's listening to this from an African family they'll be able to resonate like you know from a cultural point of view the, the, the dynamic around it is very very different the kids look after the parents as they get older not necessarily the opposite way around so mm. in western society your parents will leave you something pass give you that leg up in life it doesn't that isn't the way it worked and you know like I said I was fostered between three months to eight months because my family my parents came over in mid 1970s they had me in 79 so bearing in mind they're working two jobs each three jobs each and studying to have me it's like well we don't have the time we've got to give up studying we've got to give up work it's not going to work so they put me in foster care and how they used to do that back then is they'll put an ad in the paper and off you go um and so they sent for me when i was eight to go to nigeria and you know that cultural shock is it was an undertaking but mm. you know in my household my parents weren't wealthy um they weren't wealthy at all, actually. And I do remember because we had so little resource, like, you know, back then, you know, I'm talking 89 onwards, we had no running water, no electricity. We didn't know sometimes where our food was going to come from. So money was always this thing that was scarce. Mm. We didn't have any. Mm. And when we did have some, we had to try and make sure that it, that it stretched as far as possible. And what that does or what it did for me was it certainly made me aware that we have scarcity in our in our family and that led to a scarcity mindset. Mm. So when I fast forward to my adult years, it meant that actually when I started making really good money in Canary Wharf, guess what? This money might not be around for much, mm. much longer. So enjoy it. Do the things you wanted to do. Buy the stupid stuff that you've always wanted that in hindsight and the big scheme of things don't really matter. So 
a lot of the stuff that I wrote about in the book is from very personal experience, putting it into a formula that hopefully is easy for everyone to kind of follow. Mm, yeah, I think it's great that you've kind of shown, um, you know, you don't have have to come from money to understand money and that we are in some way, shape or form kind of, you know, we're products of our environment. So if we, ca- you know, didn't come from a very wealthy background or you experienced your parents arguing over money you might then end up with associations of money causes breakdowns of relationships Mm -hmm. so maybe going forward into your adult life you might think oh I can either be wealthy or happy in a relationship or whatever it is and I would definitely sort of invite the listeners to think about what their money mindset is um, innately and like where that might have come from and so could you talk a little bit about how you moved away from that sort of scarcity mindset and into more of a kind of abundant, you know, I can do this, I can understand money sort of thing. Was there a moment that you made the shift or? Yeah, um, there were there were probably a couple of moments. So I would fast forward to, you know, working in Canary Wharf. So I don't have a university degree. So to think about working in Canary Wharf was like, you, I shouldn't have been there in the first place based on the fact I don't have a university degree. Mm. And naively, I thought, eh, you get a job in Canary Wharf, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Quit my job in corporate yeah. banking, move back to London, it's, yeah. it's fine, it will be a doddle. That wasn't the case. But for me, I'd always seen, um, always thought of Canary Wharf being this place where if you worked there, you've made it. Mm. And it, it's more about opportunity more than anything else. By miracle, I found myself in Canary Wharf in 2012. I had a telephone boy in a company that had a new innovative investment product. And um, it gave me the opportunity to be aware of earnings, number one, and being in the position where I was previously homeless, I could work here and actually get the deposit to actually own a house. Those were pivotal moments for me because it was all about actually hanging a second. So I have a saying, money's a tool, life is for living. If I'm gonna be here, this is the place I've always wanted to be, surely I should be using this environment to the best of my ability to ensure that I can set myself up. And so the mindset shift starts to happen, but there were two instances and two conversations. The first one was someone saying to me, how many millionaires are you wearing? So this was when I was doing relatively well, but I would just go spend money because scarcity, it might not be here anymore, so I'm gonna go buy that, th- that pair of trainers that I've always wanted, or go and buy this and go and buy that because it makes me look good, makes me feel good. And he asked me, how many millionaires are you wearing? I, I recount this in the book. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, everything that you're wearing right now is from somebody who's created a business who's either a millionaire or billionaire. Mm-hmm. So you've given your money to them that you've worked hard for in exchange for what? Wow, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so for me at the time, it was instant dopamine hit, confidence boost. And that that goes a certain, certain yeah. extent, right? But I remember buying a, a pair of Giuseppe's for a thousand pounds and it gave me that hit immediately. But it was immediately followed by remorse because they weren't that comfortable. They looked terrible, <laughs> but it was like, hey, yeah, yeah. yeah, I can't wait to go into the office on Friday on dress down day and people <laughs> see me in these. Just, I'm going to I'm going to be I'm going to be so lit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first instance thinking about, you know, how, OK, I've, I've just spent a thousand pounds on something that I didn't really need. I could have put that money to better use, but I wasn't thinking that way. Then the second one was I had it was again on a Friday. I had clients in the office. so I was suited. And one of the guys that worked on the floor, he was in a different team, but kind of know what people are earning. And it's like, oh, he's doing really well. And what are you up to, mate, over the weekend? He goes, I'm going to my house in, uh, in Cornwall. What do you mean your house in Cornwall? You've got a flat here. Yeah, yeah, we've got a second home in Cornwall. And I'm like, hang on a second. (laughs) 
I, I have an idea of roughly how much you're earning. We're kind of on the same par, roughly. And I'm here in a thousand pound suit and I don't have any property to my name. And those were the two instances where it's like, you have to start thinking about things. You have to think about what what is this for? Mm. And that transfers very much into practical life. If you think about the fact that a lot of people will go to a nine to five job that they don't enjoy, it's not because you know they don't have the courage to leave, they just don't have the means to leave. So I talk about, you know, um, thinking about emergency funds, how you give yourself the opportunity to use the money that you have to move yourself forward. And when I speak about these things, I always try to tie it to some kind of goal, some kind of aspiration. Because the reality is money is its scary to talk about. It's boring. It's quite daunting. Mm. And unless you have something that means something to you, yeah, it makes sense to have an emergency fund. You know, who mm. doesn't want six times their essential bills in a bank account so they can feel comfortable? Mm. But why should you go through the pain of making that habit, making that change? Because you've got to change habits and that's the hardest thing to do. Mm. I guess, yeah, getting clear as well on what is actually important to you. Because I'm sure there are people out there that don't actually know because they've never really thought about it. Like, why am I buying this? Or why do I need this nice car? And it could be because actually they're really passionate about cars. And so that for them makes them feel good and it's an expression of them. But it also could be because they want their neighbours to see them driving well, around. Well, yes, it's the keeping car. up appearances thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I guess getting clear on that is so important. Why am I? Why do I need to buy this? Why do I actually want money? You know, is it because I want freedom or security or, you know, it, am I currently running off of this idea of needing to look good or to look flashy? Yeah. I was also going to ask you, do you feel like, because you've obviously spoken about being in that environment surrounded by people that had a lot of money and were being smart with their money. Do you think that who you sort of associate with and who you're hanging around with impacts your financial decisions as well? You know, I know that they, they say that, you know, whatever the average of your five friends are earning, you'll probably be the, the sixth or whatever the phrase is. Is that, Do you feel like that's true? I think there is some truth to that. Um, but I, if I think about my own personal experience, I think there's a, there's a lot to do with what we take in when we're younger culturally, right? So, you know, when I was much, much younger, you know, I was listening to hip hop. The my my heroes were the Puff Daddies, the notorious B.I.G.s, the Nas's, the Tupacs of this world, right? And when you think about what they were doing culturally, they were driving around in very nice cars, mm. big gold chains on, Rolexes, all that kind of stuff. So that image of success is what you you aspire to, right? And you can put this down to being, you know, maybe young, naive, and impressionable. But I think that as adults, we still carry some of that over into our adult perception of, all right, success. And it's made even worse now with social media, right? Because back then you'd have to watch MTV and yeah. and, and TV stations like that to get that stimulus, to get that, you know, that that visual. Now it's on your phone everywhere you go on TikTok, on Instagram, wherever you look, YouTube, it's there. And so I think that there's a lot to do with what you take in information wise, but certainly changing the people that you're around mm. is is so, so important. And I think as 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 people, we we all have these moments of epi an epiphany, right? Where we realize, okay, maybe we do need to change something. It's about having the courage to to lean into that feeling of, okay, maybe I need to earn more money. Maybe I need to manage what I'm doing a little bit more. Maybe I need to be a little bit smarter. It's leaning into that with confidence to know, okay, how do I, what's the next step? And because we're having more conversations now, the next step is easier to find than it used to be. Yeah. So if I was, for, for example, if, 
you I'm coming to you and saying like I've I have bad habits with money and I've you know I've got some debt building up what would be an initial conversation you would have with me with regards to me looking to change my habits currently I would be having a chat with you about what this is all about what's your why you know if you fast forward year now a year from now two years from now what does life look like what's what's the big picture and i do this in the book so that it, through the book there are four tasks task one is very very important because what i try to do is i try to get people to look at a comprehensive look at their life different aspects of their life is it leisure is it family is it travel is it hobbies those kind of things how do you score right and what areas mean most to you and then we start to have a look at the financial side to that as well. So, okay, for example, if you like going on holiday and you haven't been able to, okay, why is that from a financial point of view? Because when we ask that question, that then goes to how do you budget? How do you alloc allocate your money? Maybe if that is a high priority for you, maybe you should allocate a certain amount within your budget towards that so you can maximize that part of your life. And then we go further into, right, let's extrapolate this out for one, two, three, four, five years. Do you have any big tangible goals? So one of the big tangible goals that a lot of people speak to me about is getting on the property ladder. For young people, it's a big challenge. What does that look like? How far into the future are we looking at? What are the numbers we need to look at? Because again, because you need to change your habit, it has to be tied into something tangible where you feel you're going to get something out the back end. So it makes the sacrifice of maybe some of the sacrifices you need to make to change the habit worthwhile because you've got something tangible in the future to hang it on, to know I'm doing this because of this. And that's, that's typically where I start with people on coaching. It's all about aspirations because we just go in and say, look, you've got debt, you need yeah. to pay this off. That 200 pounds you're paying on the car, it's a waste of money. Mm. Your, your back is going to be up immediately because yeah. like, hang on a second. But if we tie it into something else that's meaningful, mm. we, make, we make much, much greater strides and progress. Mm. It's like turning it more into a positive rather than a negative because yeah. you're, you're focusing on the debt. And I, I don't know about you, but I've definitely been in a financial position in the past where I was too scared to even look at my bank balance. <laughs> Yes. That you yeah. avoid it, don't you? You yeah. avoid money. And if you're pushing money away, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to push money away. Yeah. And so turning it more into a positive is, yeah. you know, you're going to want to get more of it rather than sort of like 100%. avoiding it at all costs. And, and, and the second principle in the book is avoiding debt. And that's where I recount a lot of my experience with debt. I mean, 15 years and it started because, okay, open this first account, credit card. Great. I'll have that. Thank you very much misuse it mm. i find myself homeless sleeping on the streets then i realize hang on a second i can't eat i haven't i've got no one to go to but i do have a checkbook so i could go to tesco's do some shopping i'll write a check and they'll allow me to leave with the food yeah and then it ratchets up right but you're right it's like when you're when you're struggling with debt we know that anxiety and depression are massive side effects to that and for me i used to leave the house and I would be worried that there was a bailiff waiting for me outside. Or if I had the phone ring and it was from a withheld or a private number, I would have panic. A letter came through in the post, I would have panic, right? Mm. And I didn't know it was anxiety at the time. Writing the book, I was like, that's not right. It's meant, it really impacts your mental health. Mm. And it's important for us to acknowledge that, you know, and I say this in the book, debt sometimes has been this, this tool that people see to be able to acquire the nice car, you know, mm -hmm. go on that nice holiday and stuff like that. 
but its toll is much, much greater, much, much, much greater than just what's on the surface. Mm. And so when you approach debt, it's, it's really important to understand the difference between good, bad debt, interest rates, how you're going to plan for that, and not just plan in the immediate six months or you know the term of your loan, two years, three years, five years. You need to think about what if something changes with my finances? Am I going to? And we're seeing this now with interest rate rises during yeah. the cost of living crisis. Mm. I was going to ask you actually about good debt because you just mentioned it, and I'm glad you did because it reminded me: is all debt bad? Can you get yourself into good debt? Yeah, good debt is is there. You know, mortgages they're great debt. I mean, a good debt is anything that essentially either number one increases your your income or increases your net worth in some way, shape or form. So if you take a business loan, right, and your business flies, mm. well, that's actually going to increase your income, yeah. increase your 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 standard of living, mm. possibly increase your net worth as well. So that's a good mm. debt, mortgage, right? The, the property will appreciate in value. You're paying down the mortgage over a period of time. So that's a good debt. Student loan, it could even be a good debt if you get into it, if you actually use the qualification mm-hmm. and actually get into a, into a job that actually gives you an income. So there's good debt and there's bad debt. It's just understanding that, you know, bad debt, car finance, horrible, horrible. Mm, you know, I, I yeah. literally, I did a video on YouTube a couple of weeks ago talking about the fact that my car was going to get written off because of a minor cosmetic little scratch. I had to fight to get it you know, uh, repaired. Mm. But I was staring down the lens of actually, I might have to go buy a new car or I've got to take cash that I've put aside. Yeah. And it was like, I haven't had car payments now for three, four years. It's like, it's nice mm. not having to do that and having to have the idea of actually, I might have to either do that or use cash that I've allocated. You know, it's it's a drain. Debt will often rob you of future opportunities. And that's the key thing that I mentioned in the book, to really consider it closely, like really carefully. Yeah, it's almost like you have to... You have to think, be selfish for your future self rather than mm. selfish for you now. Yeah. Constant, oh, so future Sophie is going to love me for this. <laughs> I mean, think yeah. about it this way. We talked about people in nine to fives, right? I've been there, right? Maybe you guys have as well. Mm. Go to a nine to five. You wake up on a, on a, on a Sunday morning. You're thinking, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow. Mm. And the Monday rolls around. Oh, my God, I don't want to. Yeah, the blues. Right? And it's not that you, you, you have to go to work because you've got bills to pay. And one of the big things around the book, and I call it, you know, how to become your own financial hero is that being your financial hero is being able to have the ability to make financial decisions based out of freedom and not necessity. So actually, I hate this job. I want to do something that's more fulfilling, knowing, okay, I've got an emergency fund for six, nine months. I'm going to quit. I'm going to pursue this and be able to make that choice out of freedom and not stay in that same position because... Mm. got to pay the car you know yeah got to pay rent i've got this other debt i need to pay and all of a sudden you f- that's how people feel start getting depressed and feel restricted because they don't have choice they they feel like they're stuck mm. yeah i was wondering if you could talk a little bit on saving and how if you're doing a job that you hate for example and you're just about making ends meet and you're paying off all your bills and there's not much wiggle room at the end you know if someone for example they are living quite modestly how would you suggest putting money away and starting to put together that fund to make some big life changes? Look, I think it's all about being as pragmatic as and honest as possible. And I've had to do this myself personally, like really look at what are you spending mm. and being brutally honest. And oftentimes that's the hardest thing to do, to be brutally honest with yourself, to look yourself in the mirror and be like, okay, I'm spending, I'm doing this and it isn't paying me any good at all. And I think when I describe budgeting in the book, I say it's very, very simple. We make it way too complicated. The mm. first thing to do is you grab a, a A4 piece of paper, 
essential. So your, 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 your income in one, your outgoings in the other. And then what you then do is I describe people putting it into three parts. So you've got your essentials, your non-essentials, then you've got a third pot called your other pot. And the other pot is where you start to build towards your goals. I want to leave my nine to five. I want to buy a house. I want to go on this great holiday. And one thing that I try to, to get across in the book is pay attention to the habit. So this is the one thing that I wish someone had told me when I was 18, 19, when I first got my job. Doesn't matter if it's 1%, 2%, 10%, 20%. Whatever you earn each month, take that amount, put it aside. Because it may seem minuscule to start off with, you know, 10% of a thousand pounds is only a hundred quid. Okay, yeah, it's a hundred quid. But if you start earning more money and you've embedded that habit of 10% every single month, when you get to 2,000, 3,000 pounds, now you're putting away real sums of money. But it starts off understanding what you've got coming in and what you've got going out. And not, not overextending yourself on the non-essentials, the things that you don't really need. And in the book, I describe... Um, the non-essentials, you can also have categories. So your essentials are things you have to pay for. Your rent, your mortgage, your gas, your electric, your car, your overdraft, all those kind of things. You have to pay those. That's a certain percentage of your income. Your non-essentials will be subscriptions, things that you like to do. Now, for me, I love movies, right? So Cineworld, uh, Odeon, I've got a movie pass. I hear you, man. <laughs> right? For me, in my non, it's not an essential expenditure, but for me, it's an essential part of my non-essentials. Mm. And by putting yeah. them into that kind of hierarchy, if you have to get to the point where it's like, actually, I don't have enough coming in, I can't go out and earn more money because of other extenuating circumstances, you're going to have to start making cuts for your non-essentials. Mm. But if you've got a hierarchy of importance in your non-essentials, so for me, I would never cut my, my Odeon membership mm. because that's my way of getting out and escaping the entire world. Everything else is on the chopping block. And I think it's really important just to look at it from a pragmatic point of view. Really be honest with yourself. Look at it from a pragmatic point of view and be like, okay, what do I need? What do I not need? And start to prioritize your income and allocate the money that you want towards your goals. Like there's nothing wrong with allocating money to having a good time with your mates every month or going out mm -hmm. for a few meals or putting money towards a, towards a, a holiday. It's about being proactive. Mm. And having that level of reflection, you know, yeah. reflecting on what, you, you know you, what makes you feel good and yeah. what is essential for you in those moments i was going to say do you often reflect um on where you've come because you've had this incredible journey you know with regards to like being homeless and now where you are now do, do you ever stop and sort of think of that person as being a different person almost i have to reflect i, I try to do it as much as i possibly can um because like people who know me and people who've known me for a very long time are like, oh my God, dude, you're so doing so amazing. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. But I think you can never believe your own hype. And and to me, it's it's been gradual steps. For someone looking from the outside, it's like, oh my God, you were fostered, you've been homeless, you're on Channel 4, you've done all these other things. It's amazing. I'm writing a book. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. But at the same time, it's like, it's all happening gradual mm. steps for yeah. me. And so... I have to look back and and think about myself when I was 19 on the, on the streets, sleeping on the streets. Like if I could go back in a DeLorean and tell him, be like, Pete, don't worry, mate. In like 20 odd years time, you're gonna be sweet. Like yeah. he wouldn't believe it if I told him that. So 
I, I'm really, really grateful for my journey. And it has been, someone said to me a long time ago, you, cannot, you can't connect the dots moving forward. You can only connect them moving backwards. Everything I've been through has got me to this point. And all I'm trying to do with everything that I do now is leave a little nugget of myself here because at the end of the day, what will be my legacy? I've got a book now that will hopefully help people on their financial journeys mm. to help, so that they don't make the mistakes that I, that I did. And when I started um, the podcast and the YouTube channel in 2020, it was to have conversations conversations that I wish someone had with me when I was in my 20s. So I'm grateful for my journey. And I always look back and you know, have to pinch myself a little bit because the stuff that's happened, you know, I went, I shouldn't have been in Canary Wharf and it all kind of started there. But in five years, I went from telephone boy to the executive team of a Fortune 100 company. It's like, it's mad without a university degree. Like you have to pinch yourself and be grateful for those kind of things, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's so inspiring. And I'm sure there'll be so many people listening as well who feel a bit helpless or hopeless and like oh you know apathetic about the whole I mean about money in general and yeah just just to know that you can literally come from a place where you are either you either have no money or you're getting it and then spending it immediately and kind of like yeah it's it's really inspiring yeah thank you I think you know the the lessons here that I try to impart with everyone is you know at the end of the day control the controllables there's a lot, especially with social media now, there's a lot of noise that will come at you that will try and influence your mindset, the way you see the world. Mm. And you really have to be able to filter those things out and think about where you want to be. It's all about hard work, not being told no, or at least having, I guess, maybe sometimes the naivety to be like, actually, mm. I heard no, but I don't care. I'm coming back for more. And that tenacity will get you through it really, really well. And I think people who matter and people who can help you on that that ladder will notice that in you mm. because it's if you have the tenacity not to take no for an answer that's the that's the formula for winning right there yeah yeah i, I guess there's a big difference between people that see someone else um you know succeeding and living their best life and then are filled with sort of envy and like oh that's never going to happen for me and then the people that do have that tenacity and like yeah that's going to be me one day even if it might not on the surface look or feel like it it's you know believing that and yeah. going for it and putting the steps in place i guess which which is yeah important yeah um Moving slightly more into kind of some pragmatic areas in terms of sort of saving and and putting money away in good places. Could you talk a little bit on investing, the importance of investing and why we should be investing, um, the risks in investing? If if you have any tips on where to start, if you've never invest, invested anything before. you know, And again, I think this can often come down to where you know how you grow up what mm -hmm. your family are talking about when you're a kid because i didn't learn about sort of investing stocks and shares and now we've got cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. and stuff like that i didn't hear any of that growing up and it is literally like learning a new language so yeah. could you sort of talk on that a little bit yeah i mean this is probably my favorite topic of all, <laughs> yeah i could see your smile so. <laughs> <laughs> look so investing in the formula is one of the biggest is the biggest part of the formula you need obviously the the three that come before it but if you nail down the three before it this is where you really make it happen so the three before that's getting out debt budgeting budgeting avoiding debt saving early 
things. Right. Those are your foundations. When you get to investing, that's where you really start to make it happen. Because investing is about the future, creating mm. wealth for the future. And one of the things that I wish that I'd known earlier is just generally how investing works. And when I explain this to people in workshops or in, or in talks, I say to people, look, think about the world around us, right? Think about the things that we absolutely need. Because there isn't anything in this room that isn't made by a company that you could probably invest in. Mm. And when you get down to like simple, basic human need, what are those things? We need finances. We need energy. We need food. We need technology. When you start looking at those things, you then start to look at the companies that play within that sector, right? And that's what investing is all about. It's about putting money into those kind of companies because they are a core part of the, ne the necessities that we need for life. Mm. And by putting money into those companies, as they grow, your money also grows alongside it. Now, with that being said, it sounds very simplistic where, mm. I've just, where I've just explained that. There are risks because the reality is a company might perform really, really well. A company might perform really, really badly. But the great thing is you can actually manage that risk. And I talk about this in the book quite extensively around what is your attitude to risk? So how much risk are you willing to take? Okay, so if you went into a casino, are you really going to put all of your money on black in one go? Mm. Most people will probably be like, no, I'll probably spread it across, you know, a few rounds or, or whatever it might be. You do exactly the same with, with investing. Mm. You put it in a number of companies, right? And opposed to putting it in just one. And that helps you spread your risk, diversify your risk. Mm. And I also talk about the risk that you're able to take very, very different to the risk that you're willing to take. So for example, if you haven't got six months worth of your expenses in the bank as an emergency fund, and you're investing all of your spare cash every single month, well, what happens if you lose your job? Mm. That emergency fund will help you keep things tied over in opposed to you having to maybe take money out that might be down because mm, the economy is not as good as it, as it, as it needs to be. Mm. So there are, there are very subtle things that people need to understand as the basics of investment and investing that people just feel are way too complex and they're actually not. They're actually very, very simple when yeah. you break it down simply to people. But investing really is where you create wealth. It's, you know, at this time where we're in the cost of living crisis you know people have been talking about energy companies mm. making a lot of money right mm. well you can look at this two ways as mm. a consumer it's horrible yes we're all being hammered with our monthly direct debits but if you're invested in these companies guess what they're paying out dividends the share prices yeah. is rocketing so it's it's looking there are two sides of the world you're either a consumer or you're an owner Interesting. How can you be both? Because you're automatically going to be a consumer in some way, shape or form. What they don't teach us in, in school is how you become owner of parts of these companies. And that's what investing is. Mm. It's about you taking ownership, being an owner in these businesses. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's interesting. Because actually now I'm looking at myself. Am I a consumer? <laughs> yeah. And is it true um, what I always hear? Oh, don't invest anything you're not willing to completely lose. Yes, they say that because of obviously the risk that is involved with investing mm -hmm. and that it's, it's there to help you think from a look, if you put a thousand pounds into this, if it went to zero, is it going to have a significant impact on your on your livelihood on the way you'll feel okay. right? 
If it does, then that tells you maybe you shouldn't invest a thousand pounds. Maybe you should invest 500 or 200 or whatever you feel is comfortable. It's, it's a risk management question, but it is a very, very, very important question. Now, the reality is that in traditional investing, so in companies like uh, the energy companies, for example, or if you have a look at Apple because of the iPhone and the MacBook Pros, ma and I use Apple in the book as a, as a prime example, right? Massive companies, right? it is very unlikely you're going to put money into those companies and they're going to, going to go to zero. Very mm. unlikely. In crypto, mm. possibly. And mm. we've seen that. I've certainly seen that. But this is where you start having to seek out knowledge so you can be discerning around, okay, what are the different kinds of things that you can invest in that will give you maybe not a stable, steady ride, but less of a volatile ride where it's going up one day, then it's mm. down 50% the other day. You don't want that. You want something that's going to give you an easy ride. Yeah. Well, yeah, on that, actually, I wanted to ask you about cryptocurrency because it's something I, I literally do not know anything about. Mm -hmm. um, and it does feel like from the outside looking in that it's very volatile, uh, has a volatile nature to it. it is, is it something that we should try and really avoid at all costs or is there a is there is there a chance that we can actually financially gain from those kind of currencies and the, and good question yeah right so look crypto you can financially gain from crypto and people have right the issue that you have with crypto is it's not like a traditional way of investing so let's just use apple as the example right so apple how many products do they have that you can reel off right now? AirPods, iPhone, MacBook Pro. They've got software stuff. They've got the iPad, right? They've got a multitude of products. As a company, they're worth over a trillion dollars, mm. right? So this company produces income. It's, it's a tangible company. You can touch their products. You can go to their head office. You can go to their stores. You can, you can physically see and feel them, right? You could speak to them if you wanted to. Cryptocurrency isn't like that. It's not something that is income generating. It's not based on anything, really. Where's the value coming from? The value is, is driven from people's sentiment. Or we think there's value in this, and therefore Bitcoin, as an example, will, will increase because a lot of people want to buy it. Supply versus demand, mm. right? If there's more demand, fewer supply, price rockets. So traditionally and fundamentally, they're very, very, very different. And it's important to understand that when you go into cryptocurrency, because it's not like an Apple where you can physically go and have a look at their accounts and see, have they lost money this quarter? If they've lost money this quarter, actually, the share price probably won't be, investors aren't going to be happy if they've lost money. You can't really do that with crypto. And so you can make money from it, but it's very, very important to understand that as a basic fundamental principle the journey that you're going to go on and the things that you need to look for in cryptocurrency is very, very different to what you would look at if you're investing in a company like, like Apple. And what I say to people is, if you are going to invest in it, I've got investment in, in crypto, only put a small portion of your overall money into it. Keep to some of the traditional stuff because mm. the traditional stuff is where the real world operates and we live in the real world currently. Yeah, I call it like money to play with, yeah. stuff like mm. that. If I was going to invest in crypto, it's more like just for fun because yeah. then you never know, but you're not really losing anything. Yeah. But do you see us going more towards that formula? Because I've, I mean, I talk to people who are convinced that cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is going to be the way forward. There are definite user case studies for it in terms of there's utility, right? It's there for a purpose. And, and people like the fact that it's decentralized. It's not connected to any traditional financial system. It's not controlled by a bank or controlled by a government. 
there are there is utility in it. Mm-hmm. I think it has some role to play in the future. But I think because of what we've seen over the last 12 months or so, the traditional narrative around crypto has become a little bit clouded because, well, if it was this, what they called a hedge against inflation, which was if inflation is high, then mm-hmm. actually crypto should be soaring. That hasn't happened. And that's because of human human psychology, human nature. The, what we've seen is that inflation and the cost of things have increased so much. And you can't get around the fact that when prices go up, people start to look at, hang on a second, I've got some money invested. I might need that money. You see a lot of people take money out. Mm-hmm. And again, because crypto is based on sentiment, as a lot of people take money out, guess what? The value falls. And so you can never discount human psychology when you think about investing. It's really, really important. And that's one big learning curve that I kind of reference in the book as well in behavioral finance, how we make decisions, how we come to um, the choices that we make, particularly when it comes to investing where there's, I might lose my money. Mm-hmm. It's very, very different when you've got that notion in the back of your head. Mm. So, just very quickly before we move on, if someone is interested in investing and they absolutely no idea how to even start, where to go, you know, investing for dummies, where would you start? Do you need to find a broker or like, you know, some or a platform or a web or other, you know, apps you can use? And I know there's sort of like apps um, that kind of take your money round, like roundup accounts yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and then invest it for you? Yeah. Or do you need to do all the research yourself in which companies to invest in and stuff? Where would you suggest you start? For any newbie, this is the first time you've you've ever heard the word invest and you have no idea where to start. The best thing you could do... This is me, basically. Yeah, <laughs> the, the best thing you could do notes, yeah, yeah. is I am, I am. literally... Just go and download an app like Moneybox, for example. Mm, I've got Moneybox. Uh, Moneybox is great. They have the roundup feature. It's yeah. amazing. And you right? can choose your risk as well, yeah. like low, medium, or high yeah. risk. Yeah, it's amazing. So think about it, right? You'll do your weekly shop. You spend £58.95. You can round up the extra 5p or the extra £1 here and there. That goes into an investment for you. Like, pe- Honestly, people think it doesn't make any difference. It makes a huge mm. difference because those little roundups that you make, all of a sudden it's 100 quid. Then all of a sudden it's 200 quid. And it's mm. like, it's literally, you would have never have noticed it otherwise. It's one of the easiest ways that you can start. And investing is such a thing now that back in my day, you need to have like 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds. You needed to go see a financial advisor and they would take part of the money you were going to invest anyway. Now, mm. a pound, that's all you need to get started. And it's like, just download an app, have a play around with it. There are so many choices. There are so many ways that you can invest. I do talk about it in the book. But for a complete newbie, go and get an app like Moneybox to get mm. you started. Yeah. Mm, and then what would be the next step on from that? Going to sort of, you know, you've got your Hargreaves, Lansdowns and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then doing the research on companies that you want to invest in yourself and stuff like that. Yeah. But- so companies like Hargreaves, Lansdowne, um, Hargreaves, Lansdowne would be picture Tesco's, but for investments. That's what Hargreaves Lansdowne is. So you walk in and you've got aisles of options. The thing with Hargreaves Lansdowne is you have to know what's on the aisle. So you need a little bit of know-how, what you're picking, Mm. what it all means, so on and so forth. It gives you a plethora of choice. It's great if you want to take a little bit of ownership on your own. Like, okay, I kind of understand uh, what an index fund or an ETF is. That's one right there. That's what it's made of. I'm going to have that one. Thank you very much. You need a little bit of know-how to be able to do that. Um, But it allows you control. It gives the power back to 
to you to be able to say, actually, you know what, I, I quite like this setup right here. Mm. Um, you can obviously use people like Vanguard. Vanguard are mm. really, really good. Very, very low cost um, as, a, as an option. I've got mm. money with Vanguard myself. Great. Been around for a very, very long time, since the 1970s. They yeah. manage billions upon billions of pounds. They're probably the biggest in the world. I was going to ask as well. So you've got, kind of got to take into account the fees and stuff when you actually yeah. take that money back. Because, yeah. you know, if you're investing and you're not going to take the money out for another 20 years, it's easy to forget that stage, I guess. Yeah, 100%. And that's one of the things that I mentioned in the book in terms of reviewing your investment is really, really important. And you might do that once a year, but you need to be mindful. And particularly as a first-time investor, you know, and this is this is this is where you kind of need to be aware of what you're doing and all of the options. Because if you go with a money box, for example, it will cost you more money because you're enlisting the the, the expertise of somebody. Mm -hmm. So you have to pay for that. So they're gonna be way more expensive than if you went with a Vanguard, for example, who are really, really cheap. But again, with Vanguard, you kind of need to know what you're picking. You kind of need to know what's what. Mm. You need some kind of understanding around that. And I've got a lot of videos on on, on YouTube and, and podcast episodes that talk people through all of that kind of stuff. But you need to understand and be mindful of the cost to you and reviewing it every single year just to make sure. And this is what I typically find. People start off and they might use a money box. Then they'll start to get more knowledge and they'll graduate. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll start to you know play around with vanguard for example mm. and then they get comfortable there and they're like okay i'm gonna leave my money here and then you know you might have a mixture of things so i have a mixture of things i i describe something called a core satellite approach so where most of my money is in like a basket of companies like apple amazon uh, coca-cola walt disney big big international companies right most mm. of my money's in there then i've got you know companies that i care about like tesla for example i have a little bit of money in tesla i have a little bit of money in in other companies mm -hmm. around that so I've got a varied approach and you just have to find your your approach but it takes you a while to get there just in terms of knowledge mm. take time be patient and just use it as a, a point of self-development but the trust me it's one of the best things you could take your time to learn and if oh. you understand that the the rewards are bountiful yeah yeah, of course, because if you think about it, if you go and get a job, you know, you take so much time to learn how to do this job, it, whether it be through training or, you know, you have to you have to learn on the job or whatever. And you're you're spending so much of your energy and your time learning that just to get a basic wage. Whereas if you actually take the time in your spare time in the evenings or weekends or whatever to learn how to invest, you're paying yourself dividends and for doing nothing. Like, yeah. You know, it's passive income, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? One hundred percent. And one of the greatest things about investing is the fact that it helps you truly leverage the power of compound interest. And again, this is something we don't get taught in school. The idea that you put money into something, it gains interest. Then the interest also gains interest. Like that's where the magic really happens. Mm. And when you think about it, right? And this is what, again, something I wish that I knew when I was like 19, 20 years old, going back to the habit, mm. 10%, put it into an investment. Yeah. How long mm. do we work for? 40, 50 years? Mm. Think about, I, mean, I would encourage anyone listening to this, type in Google, compound interest calculator, and put in £100 a month, and have it compound yearly, and put a rate of return of, say, 5 or 7%. We'll look at the number. Mm. I'll promise you, you will be shocked. And if we, were, if we told our kids this, or taught them this, when they were like 13, 14, 15, before they get into adulthood, how much of a difference would that make? Mm. And this goes back to being your own financial hero. Because imagine how wonderful it would be if you started this when you're 19 years old. You get to, you know, 45, 50. You're like, eh, you know what? Maybe I want to take life 
I mean, leisurely now, retire early. And you've got three, four, five hundred thousand pounds sat in an investment account. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's like if you think about how many people just live to their means and go through whole, their whole life living to their means and then rely on a measly pension. Well, some people, you know, no pension at mm-hmm. all. And it's scary, really, yeah. when you think about it. Um, very quickly, because uh, I know we're, we've only got a little bit of time left, but investing in property, mm-hmm. could you speak a little bit on that? Is this something we should be doing? Is it high risk, low risk? Sh- you know, if you're going to invest in property, what sort of... Uh, you know, what sort of things should you be doing? What kind of mortgages? And should, you know, you be investing in a portfolio of properties? Should you just buy your, the property that you live in? Is it better to rent in that case? Um, for a beginner, yeah. what would you suggest? There are different trains of, to- uh, trains of thought around this. Um, so when I look at property investment, I look at, look at it as an addition to your residential house that you probably have a mortgage on that you're paying off in for ownership. So your, your property investment will be... Uh, a property that you own, that you put a tenant in, and then they pay down the mortgage for you, and it appreciates in value. In the meantime, you're getting an income from the rental stream. Mm. Great idea. I think if you have the ability to do it, 100% do it. Because one of the, the things that we know in the UK at the moment is we have a very short supply of properties versus the amount of people who actually mm-hmm. want to live in them. And when you think about cities like London, I mean, just mm-hmm. across the UK in general, there's a high demand for property. So if you're able to get your hands on this scarce resource, it's only going to pay dividends in the long term. I think for a lot of people, though, um, and I speak to a lot of property investing people, and I, when I coach, I find people who have got like three, four properties. I think it's very, very important for you to understand what you're trying to do from the outset. Because when you think about it from a taxation point of view, you know, unfortunately, your properties will form part of your estate. So we have something in the UK called inheritance Mm. tax. Yeah. That means that if you are over a certain limit, when you die, you've got to pay 40% on the value of your estate. So if you've got a million pound property and you're single, not married, well, under current legislation, half a million of that will be subject to 40% tax. Mm. And there are ways that you can mitigate it if you know what your intention is from the outset. So if you wanted to start off and you know, right, this will be my first property, I'm going to be looking at the third, the fourth, the fifth, you want to build a massive portfolio, think about getting it, buying them within a limited company, Mm. because it helps with that tax issue down the line. So trying to be as pragmatic as possible. In terms of mortgages, buy to let mortgages are there, you need a healthier deposit, so probably about 20-25% deposit to be able to use one of those, but they are there, it is available to you. It's definitely something that's worthwhile having a look at in conjunction to things like investing, because you know property is a is another kind of investment. It is subject to its own risk because you have a property market at the end of the day, but like we've already said, it's a scarce commodity, so. Mm, great advice, I love that. Peter, last thing I wanted to ask you is obviously we've been going for a very tumultuous time financially as a country. And and globally as well, because mm-hmm. things like the pandemic um, and the war in Ukraine and various other different things. Is there going to be some sort of light at the end of the tunnel? There's a lot of people very stressed and um, worried at the moment, I guess, around their finances. We've obviously yeah. got an energy crisis as well. Can you see in the next year or so, there's going to be some some chance for people to, you know, maybe be able to loosen their purse strings a little bit? I think so, but I think it's going to take a while for us to get there because if you think about it, you know, this this whole thing has become so difficult because of inflation and the cost of things increasing around us, energy prices, food prices, fuel prices. I think it, we will get to the point where 
will have a little bit of respite. But this is what I think tends to happen. This is what has always happened historically. We adjust. Mm. We adjust to the new inflation rate. We adjust to the new cost of things around us. And this is the one thing that I'm really, really, really passionate about getting across to people. And I try and say this at every opportunity. This is not the first time we've been here. We've been here before. It would it just felt different different, but it was effectively the same thing. It was called something different. It was called a recession back in 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. a financial crash. It's exactly the same thing. Recession fears, people were struggling with their finances. What I can guarantee is this will happen again. And so if we are, you know, smart and we believe in, you know, Darwinism, you know, right? What do we learn now that will put us in better stead the next time this happens? And that's where the formula in the book really comes into play. Because let's face it, it is difficult right now. A lot of people are feeling the pinch. But if you can put those things into place, the next time this happens, you'll be in a much, much better space. And the, lo- the thing that I hate to think, to think of is we don't learn anything now. Mm. It happens again. Mm. Yeah, same position. Like, what progress have we made? What, like, what were we doing this whole time? And so it's, it's a difficult thing to approach. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable. And I say this in the book, it's very uncomfortable to, to tackle these things. But the sooner we do, the better, because we're trying to improve our situation. We're trying to build for the future. And that's the whole point. Yeah, it's the perfect time. You know, the financial winter of your life is the perfect time to get good at this stuff because then if you can sort things out you know if you buy your book learn these things then come springtime when everything starts to get a little bit easier we'll have everything in place and then if it happens again hopefully we'll we'll thrive you can thrive in a financial winter then you can thrive even more you know when things aren't as tough so yeah definitely buy the book i would say and yeah the money basics we're going to put some uh some things in the show notes, but um, thank you. Mm. Is Peter's there anywhere where everyone else can find you, sort of social media and stuff like that? Yeah, so on, on YouTube, it's my name, Peter Kamalafe. On um, Instagram, it's Conversation of Money. If you type in my name, Peter Kamalafe, you'll find me. The podcast is the Conversation of Money podcast. It goes out every Monday, 6 a.m. So it's also available there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I always welcome people to send me questions if they have questions. I get a lot, but I do try and get back to every single question that I get. And I host uh, live Q&As regularly on, on YouTube if people want to ask questions and interact. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. Thank it's you. been fascinating. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to Unquestionable. We'd love to hear from you on social media by searching for Unquestionable Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.